Not that you've already received a warm welcome, but let me add my words of welcome to those that have been expressed. Um, in the in the bulletin, you'll find a number of different announcements that will be of your um, for your benefit, and we encourage you to look at that. Um, Brian Bergman every week prepares the uh, discussion or reflection questions that are at the middle section of the bulletin. Just want to make one clarification on uh, Thursday, April 18th. The text, uh, the, the text says Isaiah 51, verse 12, and it should be Isaiah 53, verse 12. And so please make a note of that um, because the text might not make sense if, um, uh, if, if you're looking in Isaiah chapter uh, 51. Next Sunday is uh, Easter Sunday, and, uh, and unlike Christmas, there's a lot more certainty attached to the date of the resurrection of Jesus because of the relationship with the Jewish Passover. And, um, and so we are going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus as we do every Sunday, but we're going to do it in a little bit special way uh, this next week. Uh, the children will be having an activity outside. Uh, there will be different stations for learning, for hearing the story about uh, Jesus' entry into um, Jerusalem, which begins uh, uh, in terms of the, the Christian calendar today, as Paul mentioned. Um, and then all the kids will come inside and join us for the uh, the assembly together. And so please uh, make it a point to to bring your kids, enjoy that, and then join us back here. Uh, last week, we noticed one of the more unusual of Jesus' miracles. Jesus healed a blind man, which is unusual in and of itself. He didn't heal too many blind men, even though that was one of the indications of, of, of this new age that he was coming to uh, inaugurate. Uh, but he did it in two steps. And after um, making some mud and putting it on the, the man's eyes then uh, uh, or, or spit, then he, he did it. He asked him, can you see, which was unusual because typically after Jesus healed someone, he just said, get up and walk, or, or, or here's the food, eat. Uh, and yet Jesus asked, like, did it work? And the man says, well, I can kind of see in fuzzy images, kind of like if I were to take off my glasses, I would say, wow, what a beautiful audience we have. And then I put on my glasses and I realized, wow, they're even prettier now that I can actually see them. Uh, I would just assume that you would be pretty, but then I can see in the man after Jesus touched him a second time and fully restored his sight, he could see people clearly. Well, Jesus was making use of this healing as a teaching moment. It was kind of like a parable to set the stage for the text that we're going to read today in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, or you can follow along on the screen. Jesus and his disciples were went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, the, the response is going to be similar to what was said in Mark chapter 6. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, who was dead. They thought, well, maybe he had come back to life. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. What's interesting in this description of who people think Jesus is, is nobody mentions that, well, maybe he's the Messiah. didn't even cross their mind. It just wasn't on their radar. You've probably seen these man-on-the-street videos, and they'll go up to just random people, say, who do you think Jesus is? And it catches them off guard. And sometimes they say, I, 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 I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. And sometimes they say, well, he was a good man, nothing special, but, you know, he was a good guy. He wasn't 
divine. Others will say, well, he's a figment of someone's imagination, and it's just, I, I, I was watching one the other day, and they say, well, it's just part of uh, the, the religious authorities' attempt to control the masses by, by these delusions of individuals. And then some will suggest, well, yeah, he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. Well, no one in this time, at this particular moment, mentioned the possibility of a Messiah. So Jesus gets a little personal and says, well, what do you guys say? Who do you think I am? And then Peter, inspired by God, says, you are the Messiah. Ding, 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 ding. You get, you know, you, you win the prize. This is the correct answer. But then what is the response? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. It's kind of strange, right? If you get the prize, it's like, well, but don't tell anybody. If you win the sweepstakes, there's reasons why you might not want to in today's world. But that's the first thing that you want to do is you want to shout, hey, this is the Messiah. We've been waiting for this guy for thousands of years. But the problem is, and we're going to see exactly the problem in just one or two verses, their idea of what the Messiah meant and meant for them was totally different from what Jesus meant. And so he says, I don't want you to tell anybody about this reality until I have a chance to nuance it and tell it the right way. So he tells them to be quiet. Then he began to teach them. This is the beginning of a new stage in Jesus' teaching. They had their eyes opened halfway. He's the Messiah. But now they need to get them fully opened, and that has to do with understanding what does it mean to be the Messiah? What does it mean to be the Christ? So he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Well, if you were, we, we've heard this, and we're so familiar with this, that it doesn't hit us like it would have hit them. In their mind, the Messiah never dies. In their mind, the Messiah had the strength and military prowess of David, had the wisdom of Solomon, had the strength of Goliath. In their mind, the Messiah would do no wrong, and the good that he would do would be to defeat militarily the Romans and all the enemies of God. There are various different Jewish writings that talk about how the Messiah will make the hills run blood, run red with the blood of the enemies. Very few would have ever considered that the Messiah was going to suffer, and even fewer would have thought about the fact that he was going to die. Which explains Peter's reaction. Jesus wasn't speaking in parables anymore. He was just speaking flat out, right in their face. And then Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. This word rebuke is the same word when Jesus rebuked the winds. He's in the middle of this storm and the wind is whipping his hair and his beard and everything is going crazy. And how do you make yourself heard over a storm? You yell, all caps, BE QUIET! And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Hey, Jesus, stop. Stop talking foolish. This isn't what you should be saying. Can you imagine the audacity of Peter to do that? 
I, I mean, even with his foot and mouth disease, I just can't even begin to think how this would have looked. And so Jesus, I think, was caught off guard too because immediately Jesus turned, looked at all the disciples because they were probably in on it too, and they said, well, Peter, you, you say it, you say it. He rebuked Peter. Hey, you don't tell me to be quiet. I'm going to tell you to be quiet. <laughs> and then he says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. This is, he, he just won the prize for getting the, 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 the answer right. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah. And now he's calling him Satan. Well, this goes back to the earlier uh, chapters in, uh, in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus was tempted three times by Satan. And basically what Satan was offering Jesus was a way to get to the crown without going through the cross. A way to get to the mountain without having to go through the valley of darkness and the valley of shadows. A way to get the prize without having to do the hard work. And Jesus each time in the temptations earlier said no. And this time he says, no, Satan, you're not going to get me again. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're thinking about this from an extremely human vantage point. And then he calls the crowd together to give them this teaching. Now, what Mark is doing in these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, is three times Jesus will give a prediction or an announcement of his death. And this is the first of those. And then after that, there will be some misunderstanding about the, from the disciples. And then Jesus will use that as a teaching opportunity to talk about what it means to be his disciple. So three times we're going to see this pattern repeat itself, each in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And so this first one, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now this week, it's possible that you will see a reenactment of someone taking up a cross. It's possible that you will even see people, and, and I've seen it, it's, it's somewhat horrific, but actually nailed to crosses. I think in the Philippines uh, I, I've seen it done, and maybe in other places as well. Because this is the week when that would happen. But even in those cases... I don't know how it strikes you when you see those things, but it doesn't seem to ring true. And part of the problem is, is that we're so removed from what it meant to take up your cross. Plutarch says, every criminal carries his own cross. Because the Romans would crucify for one of three offenses. If you were a criminal, if you were a revolutionary, or you're a slave that had committed some sort of offense. Those were crucifying sins or crimes. The roads would have been lined by individuals that had been crucified. When Jesus says, take up your cross, they might have seen individuals on the path or on the road that were actually crucified. And the thing about crucifixion, as opposed to other ways of honorable death or execution, the part that it's hard for us to get viscerally involved in was the shame. 
Because even in today's world, when a criminal is executed, there might be some shame, but it's done as sanitarily and ethically possible within those contexts, right? The Romans went exactly the opposite. They crucified individuals, men and women, nude. They wanted them to be shamed. They wanted people to laugh at them, to spit on them, to abuse them. They delighted in the shame that this would bring to the Jewish people and those individuals that they determined deserved it. And and I don't know that there's too much that happens in our world today that could equal that level of shame. It wasn't just about dying. It was the shame that went along with being displayed in such a horrendous, horrendous way. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, this is kind of a little step further than when he, by the side of the Galilean sea, said, hey, come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Let's have a cookout. Let's go on a walk together. This will be fun. I don't know about you, but when I began following Jesus, I did it because I was in a point of desperation, and what I was looking for was a way to save my life. The first promise I made to God was in a desert in Arizona. I was hungry. I was alone. I was hurting. And I said, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want. Save me. Well, God did. And then I thought, wow, what a coincidence. I got saved just when I was talking about this. And then I went my merry way. You know, I don't know what it was that drew you to God in the first place. I don't know what drew you to sunset. But if we're going to be honest, many of us entered into that relationship with pretty selfish motives. I needed something. I've known of guys that have joined youth groups and college groups because there's pretty young ladies that are of marriageable age. I've known of people that have showed up at church because they were offering free food. I've known of people that have drawn near to God because of any number of different things. And I'm not suggesting that any of those in and of themselves are invalid. But what I am suggesting is that once we hear the call of Jesus, it's very likely he's going to come back and say, Oh, by the way, if you really want to be my disciple, there's this. You see, I didn't follow God because I wanted to lose my life. I didn't follow God because I wanted to give up my life. I wanted to find my life. I wanted to save my life. I wanted to have something. And now Jesus is saying, if you really want to be saved, you've got to prepare to give it all up. And those kind of paradoxical statements are going to be found throughout this section that we're looking at. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
And here's that shame part. See, I never really understood why he's talking about being ashamed, but it's tied to the crucifixion. See, I don't want to be ashamed. I I don't want to embarrass myself in front of you. I I don't want to embarrass myself in front of anybody. But when Jesus calls me to pick up the cross, that means you're going to get embarrassed. And so he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. You know, sometimes we get a glimpse of it when we admit that we're Christians, that we follow Jesus in a work context or with our bowling club or whatever it might be. And there's a little bit of that ribbing. I get it when I go to my barber shop. Because they all know that I'm a minister and they say, oh, I be el pastor. Here comes the pastor. So they change the radio station and everybody tries to talk nice for a little bit while, for a little while. And I tell them, hey, you know, you don't have to do that for me. I mean, God hears you when I'm not here. So, you know, it's all good. <laughs> um, but there are other times I've been in situations where people have the exact opposite reaction. They ratcheted it up. You're familiar with Tim Tebow, Right. And his open demonstration of faith, and so they made it. I think they were kind of making fun of him, but it's kind of like when the first Christians were called Christians. I think it was a slur. T-bowing, where you kneel down. You know, he professed that as a Christian he was a virgin, and he intended to enter into marriage as a virgin. So you know what radio stations and other organizations did? They started offering girls money if they would get TiVo to uh, lose his virginity with proof. And I think the bids went as high as $1 million. If you could get TiVo to fall, we will pay you this much money. And as far as I know, no one was successful. And I think just this last week, I, or the week before, I read that he's engaged now and going to get married, and hopefully they will have a, a wonderful life. But, but can you imagine the stress and the pressure? Someone's being paid to take you down. Well, that's what our enemy is trying to do, and Jesus wants us to succeed But the way to succeed is not by grabbing onto life, it's by letting it go. There's one last verse in this text. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come with power. And the critics will suggest that, well, Jesus missed it, the timeline was off, and so he's wrong. But we understand that he's referring to his coming again, and while... That didn't happen. Most likely he's referring to the transfiguration, which we'll talk about next week, and then all of the events leading up to his death, his resurrection, and then his coming at the day of Pentecost but through the Holy Spirit. So Mark wants to make it really, really clear. A, a disciple is someone who does more than just get the facts right. The facts are important, but Jesus is calling us to a lifestyle. And that lifestyle involves a cross. 
The cross is not only a means of redemption for our sins, but it's also a way of life for us as Christians. Take up your cross and follow me. I I don't know what that looks like for you because it's going to be different for each one of us. We see politicians, kings, and prime ministers who will do public service because it's good on their resume. And that's what their goal is, and so they'll do it just to get ahead. We hear of military leaders that move up the ranks by stepping on other people to get forward. We believe the lie that money is the most potent kind of power and you should get as much of it as you can even though statistic after statistic after study after study show that money is not the answer. Now it's common to hear this phrase YOLO, you only live once and what that means is you can justify just about anything you want to do because hey, after all, you only live once. Go for it. Anything that will make you comfortable and fulfill your needs. And Jesus is calling us to something very, very, very different. There's a neighborhood in Jacksonville. I don't know it. I don't know the city very well. Some of you perhaps might, but it's the Cleveland Arms Apartments. I think it's on Cleveland Avenue. There was a cabinet maker who was really successful, Terry Lane, and he decided uh, that he needed to expand his, his, his business, so they moved into this really nice warehouse, but it was right in this area. And constantly there were break-ins and robberies and shots fired through the windows and the walls. And at one point the police asked him, why, why did you come here? Don't you know that you shouldn't get near the rock? He said, what's the rock? He says, well, it's those apartments over there. He said, more crack cocaine is sold in those apartments than anywhere in Jacksonville, and so we call it the rock. 200-unit subsidized housing complex occupied by drug dealers, prostitutes, felons. Police so dangerous that police were hesitant to go. But he was there. So Terry said, I feel that God is leading me to do something. So he bought... Uh, a bunch of basketballs and wrote on them, Jesus loves you, Mr. Lane loves you, and threw them over the fence. Didn't hear anything, but they didn't throw them back. That was a good sign. They kept the balls. Said he was there one Saturday and he saw some of the kids and so uh, he, he went to go near them to talk to them and they started running. Ooh, here come the man! And so he, he thought, he says... Hey, are, are you thirsty? And they stopped and said, what? Are you thirsty? Would you like a Coca-Cola? I said, sure. So they went into this, the, 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 the warehouse and he opened up the Coke machine. <laughs> my, my dad had a, uh, a theater, a movie theater for a while, and it was the coolest thing in the world to go in and just have free access to the concession stand, you know? I could just go in and get whatever you want. Well, that's how they felt. So they got Cokes. So within a couple weeks, he would have a group, got up to about 35 kids. Every day after school, they would come by to get a Coke. Then he would give them a craft, and they would be down on the floor working. 
as things went on after years of ministry, uh, he decided that God was calling him to go in deeper. So he sold his share of the cabinet business and he started the Metro Inner City Sunday School. And in five years' time, he established a community center called Metro Kids Connection. Staff would feed every day 145 children uh, physically, academically, spiritually meeting their needs. It says he went from a six-figure annual salary to subsisting on $12,000 a year. But God had met every one of their needs. They were happier than they had ever been. And he says nothing could replace the joy of a young person coming up to him, shaking his hand or giving him a hug and says, Thanks, P.T., Pastor Terry. That's what Terry felt called to do. That's what he felt called to give up and called to embrace. That's not what each one of us is called to do today. But I encourage you to spend some time thinking, what is God calling you to give up? What is that thing in your life that you feel, I can't do that? And then take a good hard look at it. Maybe God is calling you to give up a job. Maybe he's calling you to, uh, uh, to, to, to get into a different career. Maybe he's calling you to develop a relationship. Maybe he's calling you to step away from a relationship. I don't know what God is calling you. But Jesus says the same thing to each one of us. Unless we are willing to let go of our life, we will never be saved. But once we choose to let go, then we will experience the, save, the salvation that he has to offer. There was a board game back in the 50s called Going to Jerusalem. I don't know. By chance, does anybody here remember it? I don't know if it was Parker Brothers or one of those organizations. And, and, and a preacher was talking about it, and he said, the thing I didn't like about that game was that it stopped on today. Today, this Sunday, triumphal entry. And everything through the game was wonderful, blessing, miracles of food, miracles of healing, miracles of the triumphal entry, but there was no cross. And the message that Jesus shares with us and calls us to is that every one of us can get a crown. But there's no crown without a cross. There's no glory without suffering. There's no high five and welcome in heaven without rejection. And so as we sing, I encourage all of us, myself included, to take a look, spend some time thinking, what is it I need to give up so that I can then gain what Jesus has to offer? Let's stand and sing. Come we now, love the Lord, and let our joys be known. Join in a song.